Marion, thank you very much. Can people hear me? Thank you. <laughs> Delighted to be here. This is, I think, my third, my third experience in weekend schools for the Department of Continuing Education. It's always a great pleasure for me. Today I'm here principally to tell you, whether you like it or not, <laughs> that David Wallace is not mad. <laughs> I've spent pretty much most of my professional career thinking about the foundations of quantum mechanics. In fact, I started out as a philosopher of physics worrying about the foundations of quantum mechanics. And it's through the work of David Wallace, David Deutsch, Simon Saunders, these are Oxford people principally, that's really brought me around to the idea that there's a great deal to be said for the Everett interpretation. In fact, the way I would put it nowadays, it's the interpretation of quantum mechanics I least dislike. <laughs> and what I want to do today is to, is to, to go back again to the superposition principle. I think I wasn't able to, to, to attend David's talk, but I did come in for the discussion. And I think there still is, my sense is that there still is a certain amount of <coughs> unease, perhaps, at the meaning of the superposition principle and how it works. And so I want to give a few more details. What I'm doing today is actually, what this is all about, in a sense, is wave-particle dualism. David described a Mach Zender interferometer using, f using light quanta, photons. So light gets split through a beam splitter, goes through, through paths, comes back, interferes with itself. And I, what I'm going to be talking about now is a beautiful technology that was developed the late 60s, early 70s, where the wave-particle dualism of matter is observed, not light. The history of quantum mechanics, actually, the wave-particle dualism issue originally rose in the case of light. This goes back to Einstein's work in 1905. Einstein postulated, actually he was looking at the thermodynamics of blackbody radiation. And Einstein, in his extraordinary, extraordinarily insightful way, was able to see that certain thermodynamic properties of black body radiation can be understood if you think of light or radiation generally, electromagnetic radiation, not in terms of the traditional Maxwell wavy-like things, you know, fields and so on, but by bundles of energy, localized bundles of energy, which he called light quanta. Now this was, we now call it if you like an elementary particle, the photon. This was the elementary particle that probably took longest to be accepted in the physics community. It took over 20 years for the majority of physicists to really accept the existence of the light quantum. One of the chiefest, one of the most important critics was Niels Bohr, who of course is one of the great founding fathers of, of quantum mechanics. And he struggled desperately to understand what was happening when the evidence started to pile up in the 20s that light did have a granular structure. It was very, very difficult for him to accept. Of course, there's plenty of evidence that light has a wave-like structure. This goes all the way back to Maxwell electrodynamics and optics and so on and so forth. How can it be that the same entity, radiation, electromagnetic radiation, under certain circumstances <coughs> behaves like waves and under certain circumstances behaves like particles? Now, thanks to the work originally of a Frenchman called Louis de Broglie, and I'll come back and mention him later, exactly the same thing emerged for material particles, particles with mass. So today I'm going to be talking about the life of the neutron. I could have chosen another one, but it turns out the technology I'll describe is particularly adapted 
to the case of neutrons. So you can be in two places at the same time if you're a neutron, just like a, a photon in the case of David's example of a Mach Zender interferometer. In the late 60s, early 70s, industry was able to produce large, perfectly, large perfect crystals of silicon. By, by which I mean that the atomic planes ran smoothly right throughout this thing. There were very, very few dislocations, impurities in this crystal. And if you were very, very patient, you could cut these crystals into a shape like this. Roughly speaking, if we think of the length of this crystal, it's about, it's a little bit less than 10 centimeters, just to give you a sense of the scale. And if you can cut these sections out and you end up with these ears, the atomic planes inside these ears are perfectly aligned right across the crystal. It's hard to do this. It's hard to build a crystal, and it's hard to cut it. And essentially, it's so hard that the, the size of this, of this device, I beg your pardon, the size of this device is roughly, roughly speaking constrained by commercial financial considerations, just by the difficulty of creating and then cutting these crystals. But for our purposes, these crystals are big enough such that if you're lucky enough to be living next to an atomic reactor, and you can get a beam of neutrons, neutrons are neutral particles, microscopic particles, elementary particles, that normally live inside the nuclei of atoms. And if you have a nuclear reactor, you can produce a beam of these things. And if you fire a neutron beam at exactly the right angle into the first crystal face here, the neutron interacts with the material inside that crystal phase, the silicon, the atomic planes. Now, for those of you who know anything about quantum mechanics, the atomic planes create a, a periodic potential, which you put into the Schrodinger equation, and you solve it. And a remarkable thing happens. Incidentally, before I go on, I should just say, the great fathers, if you have to choose two people who represent the fathers of this technology, one is Helmut Rauch, in Vienna, and the other is Sam Werner, in various parts, he's, he's worked in various places in the United States, Michigan, Missouri. They're really the fathers of this technology, and they've done absolutely wonderful experiments dealing with the superposition principle for neutrons. So if we, if we imagine <laughs> that we're sitting down, looking on top, so we've got this neutron beam coming in, and we've got some position up here looking down on it. This is what we'd see. This is the first crystal face. This is the second. This is the third. So we have this beam of neutrons coming in horizontally at some angle called the Bragg angle. And if you hit that angle precisely, the theory tells you you're going to split the beam into two parts. Now already, this is one of the simplest things in quantum mechanics, already you're seeing something truly remarkable. Truly remarkable. Because the theory tells you that this is not an or, it's an and. The theory tells you that the state of the particle is that plus that. And you might say to yourself, well, how can the neutron be in two places at the same time? Now, one thing I want to stress right from the beginning. In all the experiments I'm talking about, the intensity of this neutron beam is so low that there is one neutron at a time going through the system. So when we look at this, all of these experiments I'm about to show you, there's only one neutron. It's not a beam of successive neutrons. Of course, you, 
if you want to build up statistics, you have to send many neutrons through. But the point is that at any given time, between the entrance into the system and the detection at the far end, there's only one neutron. <coughs> That's the important point. So the theory says, somehow or other, the neutron is split into two beams. Now you might say, well, how do you know it's an AND? Just because the theory says it's an AND, it's a plus, how do you know it's really an AND? Well, let's, let's hold that for, for a moment. Of course, really, in a sense, what I'm doing in this first experiment is just exactly repeating what David said about the Mach Zender interferometer in the case of photons. <coughs> well, in the second crystal face here, you get exactly the same process because it's absolutely symmetrical. So with this case here, this part of the neutron beam gets split into two, and we're not worried about that part of the neutron beam that emerges outside the crystal. That, that could be absorbed somewhere else, so we're looking really at a subset of <coughs> neutrons that don't leave the interferometer. And similarly on that side, similarly on that side. What we're interested in are the two beams that re-emerge, that come back together again. That's what we're interested in. Now question, what's going to happen on the far side of that crystal face? What is going to happen? Now if you said, and again I'm repeating David's point, if you said, well look, really in fact, I mean these are particles, they're not waves. A neutron's a neutron. It's a localized particle. This has got to be an ore. Well then, if it's an ore, if it's really the case that the particle goes that way, you just don't know it. The theory doesn't predict which way it'll go. Then it should come out in two directions. Exactly as this one coming in produced two directions. Particles leaving in two directions. And similarly on this side, if indeed the particle, the neutron was in that beam, it should likewise produce two directions. The beams should, one, you know, every neutron should either come out in that beam or in that beam. And of course what you get is just one direction. That's what you get. Now, you say to yourself, that's strange, how can that be? Well, tomorrow I'm going to be talking a little bit about the hour of time in quantum mechanics. And one of the mysteries is, in quantum mechanics there is no hour of time. Every process that can happen one way can happen the opposite way in time. I don't mean that time's going backwards. I just mean you, you can see you can set up conditions such that the original process seems to be moving backwards in time. Now, look at this process here, and look at that process there. This is the temporal inverse of that one. And quantum mechanics says, if this one works, so does that one. They're just the temporal inverse of each other. That's one way of seeing why you have to get one, one thing coming out. It's an and and not an or. At least that seems very, very plausible. And the theory tells you that because there's a plus sign between these two states when we describe it mathematically. Now there's one easy way to destroy this so-called interference. I mean, these two particles are coming back and doing something to each other. They're affecting each other. These two beams, they're not two particles. One particle, two beams. The two beams are affecting each other. They're telling each other there's only one way to come out, not two. Well, you could put in, for example, suppose you said, but look, there must be some, some sense two particles here. The particle itself must somehow divide itself. So how come I don't have two neutrons here? Well, first of all, theory tells you that there's a conservation of neutron number. You can't create one neutron out of nothing. <coughs> but likewise, if you put a new little neutron detector here, let's suppose we have some way of detecting as the, as the, the, the neutron goes down that path, 
Let's suppose that we have some very sensitive device that it doesn't kill the neutron, but it senses it. So it clicks if the neutron passes close to it. What's going to happen up here? You're going to lose your interference. That's an easy way of killing the interference by putting a little detector in. That shouldn't be obvious. That should not be obvious. However, you might think, well, great. I've lost my and. I never liked the and. <laughs> I've lost my and, no. But here's the, here's the rub. Interference is a sign of and. But lack of interference is not always a sign of or. We haven't really got rid of the and here. And to give you a sense as to how that goes, think of the following case. Let's try to lessen the interference a little bit. So what we do <laughs> is we take a block of aluminum and we put it diagonally inside the interferometer like this. <coughs> so that's a, that's a block of aluminum. Now what does the aluminum do? The aluminum slows the neutron down a little bit, putting it crudely. So in other words, it, the neutron will come out, it may have the same momentum that it had when it started, but it will come out a little bit later than it would have otherwise. Now notice, in this block of aluminum, the amount of the amount of um, the length through the aluminum here in this beam is a little bit more than the length of aluminum there. So there's going to be a relative change in the slowing down. This slowing down is going to be a little bit more than that one. Okay? And you can make that relative difference. You can, you can just move the block around and, and, and you can make it so that both of them go through the same amount of aluminum or one a little bit more or one a little bit less. And what happens in this case is that you do get particles coming out in two beams. But the, the more, sorry, the less the difference in that length and that length, the more particles come out of this beam here. So you don't get 50-50, and that's clearly another sign of a weaker interference pattern. If there was total, in, uh, sorry, a weaker, if there was a reduction, if there was a, um, a destruction of interference, there would be 50% of the particles coming out here and 50% coming out here. Now you have something like, let's say for the sake of argument, 75% in here and 25% here. That's still interference. It's not what you would expect if there was an ore. And you can move this thing around in such a way that you can kill the interference. And then all the particles emerge out of that one. Or you can move it around in such a way that you maximize the, sorry, in that case, um, sorry, you can move it around so that you can kill the interference. So in that case, 50% of the particles are here, 50% of the particles here. But it's not that at that last moment, the end has gone to an ore. Because if you shift that aluminum block ever so slightly and just put a little bit of interference in, it's an end again. And that's not the way nature works. Nature is continuous. It's and all the way through. It's and all the way through. So again, interference is a sign of and, but lack of interference is not always a sign of or. And it's not in this case. Now, in 1983, a very nice experiment was done. This is the first of a number of examples of rather, rather striking experiments that you can do in neutron interferometry. The neutron is a spin-2 particle, so it's got this property of spin that David mentioned. Now, spin is a rather subtle thing. There's no classical analog for quantum mechanical spin. 
But just for the sake of argument, let's just imagine that it's this little spinning top. So there'll be an axis of spin. So we say, for example, well, let's choose all of our incoming neutrons to, be, to have exactly the same spin properties. So we're going to create all of these things so that the little axis of spin is pointing vertically. Okay? Now what we're going to do is, going through the, these, crystal, these crystal ears, these beam splitters, doesn't affect the spin. So ordinarily, if you have spin up here, you'll have spin up on this side, and you'll have spin up on this side, and then <coughs> eventually everything will, all the particles will come out in this so-called forward beam here because you have full interference. But now suppose you put in a spin flipper. What you're doing here is you're really introducing a very localized magnetic field. The neutron has a thing called magnetic moment, which couples to the magnetic field. And you can use the magnetic field to flip the spin. So whereas before the spin was up, on this side now the spin is down. It's pointing downwards. So that axis is pointing downwards. Okay. Now what happens in this case? Well, in this case it's a little bit like introducing that detector we saw before. You're going to kill the interference. You're going to kill the interference. So we get particles coming out both sides. But now the interesting thing is, there's our spin, but it's become horizontal, whereas before it was vertical. What's going on here? We started out with two beams with spin in the vertical direction, and they interfere with themselves, and they produce spin opposite direction spin in the horizontal direction. And that again, that's a straightforward prediction of quantum mechanics. Hard to understand if it's an or, not an and. Very hard to understand. Now another thing that's extraordinary about neutrons, this really isn't to do with our subject, but just to fill you in on, on one of the little pieces of quantum magic. Spin half particles have a funny property. They have this spin, and you say to yourself, well, of course, if I rotate the spin, what happened here was I rotated it by 180 degrees, but what if I rotated it by 360 degrees? Don't you get back what you had before? Answer, no. You kill the interference power. <coughs> if you rotate this thing by 360 degrees by using a magnetic field, you kill the interference pattern. You don't get back what you had before. You have to do it another time. You have to rotate it twice. So neutrons, along with other spin half particles, have this funny property that they're symmetric under 4 pi, not 2 pi rotations. Isn't that what spin half means? No. Well, it depends on how you, how you look at the mathematics. Good. Now here's another interesting experiment that was done. Just to, I'm starting to sort of pro probably do a little bit of overkill, but just to rub the point home. This is another little piece of quantum mechanical magic. Suppose you decide, well, instead of putting in one of these so-called phase shifters, like an aluminum block that doesn't absorb the particles, all the neutrons go through the aluminum block. Suppose I put in something that does absorb at least some of the, the neutrons going through. You can do this in one of two ways. You could have, for example, a chopper like this, made of cadmium, totally absorbing, and you rotate it very fast, and you stick that rotating chopper into the beam here, to this left beam. So that at every instant, 
either the neutron hits one of these teeth and is absorbed 100% probability, or it goes through one of the gaps between the teeth and it just goes through willy-nilly. What happens in this case? You're not interested in the neutrons that are absorbed because they don't get up to the detectors. Ignore them. What about the neutrons that aren't absorbed? Well, it turns out you get a partial interference pattern. Partial, not complete. You weaken the interference. In other words, you get many more neutrons in that beam than in that beam. And this is well understood. This is well understood. But now, on the other hand, if you take, for example, a piece of gold foil, suppose, for example, I arrange the chopper so that I essentially absorb one out of every, on average, one out of every two neutrons that go, th go along that path. 50% attenuation rate. But now I could stick in, for example, a piece of gold foil instead of the chopper. Stick that in instead. And again, I can make the thickness of the gold foil such that I get another 50% attenuation rate. What's happening here is that the neutron hits a gold nucleus in a gold atom. And there's a quantum mechanical process that has a certain probability associated with it about being absorbed or not. But nonetheless, I can arrange the thickness of this, of this gold foil such that I have exactly the same attenuation rate as the <coughs> chopper. What happens in that case? Well, again, I get a loss of interference, but it's less. In other words, the ratio between the number in that case and the number in that case is higher. It's still interference, it's partial interference, but it's not the same pattern. So we have the same attenuation, but different interference damping. And this experiment was done, and it is very well understood in quantum mechanics. It's very counterintuitive, but it's well understood. There's nothing in the, in the, in the mathematics in quantum mechanics that makes this, in some sense, incomprehensible. <coughs> now, David, did you have a chance to talk about the, the Weidmann bomb? Okay. There is something very strange about this experiment. There's something very odd about this experiment because Think of, think of, for example, the case of the gold foil. You, you put the gold foil in here, and you detect, for example, you might have a detector up here, and it clicks, which is telling you that the neutron came in outside that beam. You know it can only come outside that beam if there's been at least some degree of destruction of interference, there's, there's some dampening of interference, because if there was full interference, all the neutrons would come out of that beam. So you know when it comes out of that beam that this gold foil was there. Because if it wasn't there, there'd be full interference and the particle would be in that beam. But nothing happened to the gold foil. It did not absorb the neutron. No nucleus in the neutron got excited, absorbing the neutron. Its state remains exactly the same. So you've detected the fact, by, look, by getting the neutron in that beam, you've detected the fact that the gold foil was there even though nothing happened to it. Now, in physics in general, we have a rule. It's a sort of a hand-wavy type rule, but it usually works. And that rule is, if something is worthy of the name of substance, if something is worthy of the name of an object, it's because it acts on other things and is acted back upon. Now, why this should be symmetric? Well, you may wonder. But that's the way it seems to work. 
But here we're looking at a situation where the gold foil has acted on the neutron, but the neutron has not acted back on the gold foil at all at first sight. Maybe we can come back to that later. But this kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm sure this kind of experiment led people to think maybe we can find a dramatic way of showing this. So here's the dramatic way of showing what, what this means. This is a bomb. It's not Schrodinger's cap. Sort of. But it's a very sensitive bomb. So you imagine you're, 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 you've got some factory, you're manufacturing bombs. <coughs> These bombs that you're producing are highly, highly sensitive, which means that even if a neutron or a stray photon hits the trigger on the bomb, and this trigger slightly moves, the bomb goes off. Now, you know in your manufacturing process that you're going to produce a certain fraction of your bombs will be duds. And a certain fraction will be live. Now you want to find out when you're sending you these bombs off to, to the people who are buying them, you want to be able to say, well look, I'm pretty sure that this one is a live one. How do you tell if it's a live one without blowing it up? Can you do it? How would you tell that this is not a dud without blowing, your, blowing it and yourself up in the process? That's the question. Well, you use a bit of quantum magic. And this is a beautiful thought experiment that Lutcher and Weidman came up with in 1993. You put the bomb into an interferometer. So here's our silicon interferometer, neutron interferometer, and we've cut this crystal face to leave that bit empty. So you take a bomb, of course you have to be very careful when you're moving it around, <laughs> and you put it here where this, where this neutron beam should be reflecting. Now if it's a dud, the trigger is stuck, and it's a reflector. So this beam goes up here, it, it bounces back up here, this beam goes over here, comes up here, everything's in phase, there goes the neutron, because you have complete interference. However, suppose that it is live. Well, there's a certain probability in quantum mechanics that the, the neutron will be in that beam, and that will blow up the bomb. Too bad. <laughs> but there's also a probability in quantum mechanics that the neutron goes that way. In which case, it comes up here, and it's going to produce two beams. So, of course, nothing has happened to the bomb in exactly the same way before that nothing happened to the gold foil absorber. So if you happen to detect a particle coming out of that beam, you know that that was a live bomb. It's quite, quite neat. Hard, it's hard to know how you could do it otherwise than using quantum mechanics. What about the action-reaction principle again? Well, maybe we can come back and discuss that in the discussion period. Is this a, is this a, f a really significant violation of the action-reaction principle? Well, here's another little example. Let's go back to the case of the choppers. I've got a chopper on this side. I've got a chopper on that side. And I'm going to put them into what physicists call antiphase, which means 
I'm going to rotate them in such a way so that they're completely out of phase. In other words, in other words, when this, when a neutron, when this, when this neutron comes in and its wave function is divided into two, the minute it hits that one, if it's hitting a tooth here, on that side it's hitting an open space. On this side, if it's hitting a tooth, on that side it's hitting an open space. So now I've seemed to have, I've restricted my neutron to be in one beam or the other. Now when you do that, when you restrict the neutron to one beam or the other, you don't expect to see interference. After all, you have to have two beams to interfere, right? And sometimes in, in quantum mechanics, you often hear this remark that, you know, path information is complementary to wave properties or something. So you say, the more information I have about the path, the less of an interference pattern I'll get because that's a wave-like property. And, and particles and waves are somehow complementary. Not a very good way of thinking, but it's a kind of a hand-wavy way of talking. But here, if you think that way, you'd say, well, okay, um, I'm restricting the particle to one path or the other, and I'm going to lose interference. But then if you put this little piece of aluminium here of, a, of the right kind, if you put a phase shifter here, you end up getting interference again. So, of course, you're not going to get full interference, but you will get some interference. And it depends critically on how fast the choppers are rotating. And I'll give you a sense as to how this works. It's very hard to understand this sort of thing unless you really think of the wave function as being real. It's a real entity because you're chopping it up. So imagine, for example, you've got this waveform, this, this localized wave that's coming in, and that's split into two symmetrically. The chopper is chopping so fast <laughs> that instead of that wave front moving through all at once, it takes time to move through and the chopper is chopping it up. So you end up with a sort of sawtooth waveform. You've got a sawtooth waveform on that side, you've got a sawtooth waveform on that side. They're out of phase. So when they come together again, they annihilate each other, you don't get any interference. They don't annihilate each other, but there's no, there's no interference because they're out of phase. But if you put the appropriate phase shifter here, not just any, but you have to have, an, you have, to have a special kind of phase shifter, those two sawtooth-like waves are brought back together again slightly in phase. And that's why you get a partial interference effect. Just a slight diversion before we finish on neutron interferometry. I've been talking about neutron beams and I mentioned the word wave function. After all, these things are solutions of a particular equation, a dynamical equation called Schrodinger's equation and the object that's evolving through time, moving through space is a thing called the wave function of the neutron. It doesn't matter exactly what that means. It's a wavy type thing. Well, is that all there is to it? How do we know that, that that description is the complete description? How do we know that there isn't, I mean, a neutron, after all, also has particle-like properties. I mean, it's got mass, it's got magnetic moment, it's got, it doesn't have charge, it's a neutral particle. But I mean, shouldn't it be localized in space? Is there some way that we could associate with the neutron a localized particle? Maybe as well as the wave function. Maybe the wave function isn't the whole story. Well, this is what's sometimes referred to, well, this is 
the actual, I mean, the best theory that we have that involves a wave function and a, and a corpuscle or a particle is so-called de Broglie-Bohm theory. Now, de Broglie, I mentioned earlier, he's the father of wave-particle dualism for matter. He was the first person, well before Schrodinger and Einstein and others, to say, well, massive particles, elementary particles, also will show wave-like, wave-particle um, duality properties rather like light. And he won the Nobel Prize for this in 1929. David Bohm was an American, Broly was French, David Bohm was an American physicist who ended up many years a professor of, of physics in Birkbeck College in London. He independently, more or less independently, discovered exactly the same theory. It's all very well saying that there's a particle, you need an equation for it. You need some principle that tells you how the particle moves. After all, which beam is it going to move down inside the interferometer? And it's got to have something to do with the wave function. So they came up essentially with the same theory. Let's take a look and see how that theory works in the case of neutron interferometry. Just for the sake of argument, let's remove the third crystal face up here. Let's cut it out. So now we have two, crystal, two beam splitters. And of course, as always, we're interested in the neutron that ends up with the two beams passing through each other. In this case, there'll be some kind of interference here, but then they pass through each other. What happens if uh, there's a corpuscle, there's a particle? Well, the particle itself will be accompanying the, the wave function. It'll be somewhere inside that wave packet. And it will have to decide which of these two paths it takes. Now that decision is given by an equation. And what basically the, the particle is doing is it's sitting in the sort of streamlines of the wave packet. And depending on where, which streamline it's sitting on, it'll either take that path, oops, that path or that path. And it's totally deterministic. This whole theory is deterministic. Fundamentally deterministic theory. Now the interesting thing happen, the interesting thing that happens is this. <coughs> if you put a detector beside the left-hand beam and you put two, your two detectors up in the top, it then turns out that if this detect, the neutron detector clicks, okay, if it clicks, ordinary quantum mechanics will predict with probability one that that detector clicks. So what is the particle doing? Well, you would think ordinarily that what the, this de Broglie-Bohm particle does is that it's, this thing clicks because the particle passes that way, it comes up, it runs along here. And that's exactly what it doesn't do. Well, for, I'm talking here about a very, very special setup. This isn't any ordinary detector. But there are detectors, there are very specially constructed detectors that are such that, even though it interacts with the neutron, the neutron follows a certain principle called the no-crossing principle. The possible paths of the neutron never, never cross each other. So what the neutron is doing is that if it's coming up that way, when the, the detector clicks or otherwise, it comes up here and then it's got to bend around to that detector. That's just a feature of the theory. 
And this is the best theory we've come up with for bringing particles into the world over and above the wave function. So when this, when this clicks, you know that the Bohm corpuscle, the Broly-Bohm particle, actually took that path, even though the detector clicks over here. So the clicking is not registering the passage of the particle, it's registering, the, in some sense, the passage of the wave function. And this is sometimes referred to as fooling the detector into Broly-Bohm theory. Is this absurd? It's curious, actually, that when, when this was first pointed out by an American group, I think in the 80s, the defenders of the Broly-Bohm theory were very, very concerned about this, and they sat down and did the mathematics. And in fact, they simplified it, and they showed, yes, indeed, this is exactly what happens in these very, very special cases. In these very, very special cases. And then they said to themselves, wait a minute, this is exactly <coughs> what we should have expected. Because the de Broly-Bohm theory has action at a distance built into it. They already knew this. They just didn't expect this particular phenomenon to, re to reflect the action at a distance. This is something, by the way, Every type of hidden variable theory, I mean, the particle is a sort of a hidden thing. You don't sort of see it in any straightforward sense. That's why for so long, for example, people thought that the wave function was the full reality. It's now known that every theory that's consistent with quantum mechanics, certain kinds of predictions in quantum mechanics have to, some, have, to have some kind of action at a distance in them, which is not a very pleasant thing when you think about relativity and the fact that it took Einstein a great deal of hard work to develop a theory of gravity that didn't have action at a distance in it. But that's the way it is. Now, just one last thing about the de Broglie-Bohm theory. And again, this comes back to the neutron interferometry. One of the most beautiful experiments that was done, this is the last one I'll mention, <coughs> often referred to as the cow experiment, because it was done by Experimenters called Colella, Overhauser, and Werner. Sam Werner is the, one, the person I mentioned at the beginning in the United States. And what they did was they took their interferometer. Here it is again. This is the neutron interferometer. Slightly different shape of the crystal. Now the neutrons are coming in this way. And what they did was they took their interferometer and very, very, very carefully they tilted it. Just tilted it by a centimeter or so. So that that beam inside the interferometer is slightly higher in the Earth's gravitational field than that one. Ever so slightly higher, by about a centimeter. Not a big difference in terms of the gravitational potential. And what they found, and what theory predicted, was that there was a loss of interference. <coughs> and the loss of interference was confirmed to within about 1% accuracy, something like that. So this was a celebrated experiment because it's often said this was the first time an experiment was done that combined quantum mechanics with gravity. Well, that's a debatable issue. But it was a beautiful experiment. It's, it's been repeated on many occasions. And in every single case, the, the partial loss of interference matches the predictions in quantum mechanics. But the partial loss of interference depends on the angle of tilt. So, for example, by continuing to tilt this thing, you can run between partial interference, zero interference, <coughs> partial interference, full interference. You can run through a gamut of possible cases. But more importantly, the predictions in quantum mechanics tell you that the loss of interference due to the difference in the gravitational potential 
depends on the mass of the particle, the mass of the neutron. If hypothetically, counterfactually, neutrons had a different mass, the loss of interference would be different. Now, this is something that depends on mass. But the effect obviously depends on something, on a, on a relative difference between something happening in that beam and something happening in that beam. How are you supposed to understand this in the case of the de Broglie-Bohm theory? The de Broglie-Bohm particle only feels one path. It's being kicked around by the wave function, deterministically, and it deterministically chooses either that path or that path. But this effect, the loss of interference, depends on something that depends on, I mean, it's, it's, it's sensitive to a relative difference between the two paths. The de Broglie-Bohm particle is only picking out one path. How does it know anything about the other? So in other words, the mass of the neutron, plausibly, is not a property of the de Broglie-Bohm particle, it's a property of the wave function. And you can use this kind of argument in other, in other um, circumstances, other kinds of interference effects, to show, for example, that other properties you would expect to be a property of the particle, in fact, a property of the wave function, like charge. You can do an inter interference experiment. Some of you may have heard of the Harnov-Bohm effect. That clearly shows, if it shows anything, that charge is plausibly also a, a property of the wave function and not the particle. So if this is not a knockdown argument, and neither was the previous one against the existence of the de Broglie-Bohm particles, I'm just saying that neutron interferometry, inter interferometric effects, show you the price that you pay when you introduce particles as well as the wave function. That's to say you can fool detectors, detectors will fire where the particle isn't, and it turns out that the, the properties you expect the particle to have, like mass and charge and magnetic moment, are more likely to be properties of the wave function. Well, let's, let's now come back to where we started and all the way up. So let's put, again, let's put in our aluminum block and we get <coughs> partial interference. And at the end of this device, we have a detector on one side and Professor Rauch from Vienna is looking at that detector, listening to the detector. And the detector either clicks or it doesn't click. And I've been arguing, again, I haven't used formulas, but I've been arguing that the only really natural way to understand these phenomena is to say that there's an and going on in the interference and not an or. That the neutron is somehow in that beam and that beam, in that beam and that beam, in that beam and that beam. So what this means essentially is, well, let's just apply quantum mechanics all the way up. What about the detector? <coughs> Isn't the detector made out of atoms, molecules? And don't they have wave functions? Or aren't they wave functions? So we bring them into the analysis. And now we have an and that stretches all the way to this guy and the neutron. But then Professor Rauch is a kind of measuring device. And he's also made out of wave functions. So what we end up with is the neutron enters detector and Professor Rauch hears click. And the neutron does not enter the detector, and Professor Rauch does not hear a click. If we're taking and seriously all the way up, 
And then, of course, the question is, the question that came up in David's talk, what's it like, Professor Rauch? What's it like? And the answer is, just like what you normally experience. It's just two of you. <laughs> Thank you very much.